Hey team, welcome back to the Wallad Podcast. I'm James Marshall, and thanks for tuning into another episode. And thank you to anyone who has bought themselves some Wallad merch this week. We've restocked in hats and hoodies. We've also added two new colours in the hoodies, in a very dark blue and a grey, just to give the real lads an option. And we currently have free shipping on any orders within New Zealand. Free shipping, how good's that? So if you enjoy this podcast, go and be a lad and get yourself a hat, hoodie, singlet or tee, and that would be very much appreciated. To do so, head over to waterlad.com, your one-stop shop, and you'll also find Waterlad Coffee on there, some of the best coffee you'll ever try, and discounts to Pure Sport CBD, Mintwear Undies and Sujon. So if any of those tickle your fancy, go and check out waterlad.com. Anyway, I have a legend on the show for you today, so let's get to it. Righto, the lads just keep coming, and today is no different as we have one of the most all-time requested lads on the podcast. Throughout his career, he's been one of the most recognisable figures with his facial hair and hairstyles, and he was always one of the fans' favourite. Playing for Manawatu, Taranaki, the Hurricanes, and of course the mighty All Blacks. He also spent some time in Japan before heading over to France, where he became a La Rochelle legend. He achieved all that while always being an absolute lad who loved his beer and a good time. It is the great man himself, Jason Eaton. Welcome, mate. Hell of an intro. Thanks, mate. Mate, you are looking great. Facial hair as good as always. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I was actually thinking about this morning watching the, um, the All Blacks play the USA. I was, I was watching that and looking at all the hairdos. Eh? I was like, look at that. That's like... You know, I did that like 15 years ago, having the old mullet. I wouldn't do it if everyone else was doing it. I did it when no one was doing it. <laughs> you did it to be different. Yeah, I, I do it to be different, not to follow the crowd, but yeah. Yeah, well, I had um, Liam Squire on last week, and he, he sort of felt like he was a little bit ahead of his time as well. But, uh, mate, you were five-plus years ahead of him, so you really started the trend. You know, it was a shocking one. And then, uh, yeah, then, then you've got a, you know, my old flatmate, Andrew Keith Thor, told me to, when I got injured that, well, when he got injured, busted a shoulder, he goes, I didn't shave or cut my hair until I played again. So I was like, oh, I'll do that too. And that was when I first grew out the big beard and long hair True. and stuff. So, yeah, I don't know what excuses now. <laughs> and do you love it? Do you still love having your big beard? Uh, well, I've always said this, like, I, I do like growing a beard because I hate shaving, eh? I, I I feel like it's a real time waster and a bit of a drag, eh? Like um, it's so much easier to have, or not to shave. It's a lot easier to do that than than worry about everything and going to the you know barber every two weeks like some some guys do. Um, and I think I, I I enjoy the beard. I, I think I suit it. So it comes and goes. You know, I, I tend to grow it for a year and then chop it off and <laughs> get start again. You got so much more time for other things now that you don't have to shave. <laughs> exactly. Well, you think that's a few that few minutes each? Well, it depends how often you shave, I guess. I don't even yeah. shave when I'm on a building site. <laughs> Does it ever get itchy for you? How do you get past that phase? Because that's where I always get stuck. I let it grow till it gets itchy, which is roughly about three weeks. That's a very common question around the beard. Um, you know, I, I get itchy from week two to week three, four. But then once you pass out, it's fine. It, it sort of grows on your hair, a bit like pubes, I guess, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just sort of, 
you know, curly, curly in your face. But no, I mean, there's, you know, it becomes like soft and, and not so scratchy after a while, um, once so long <laughs> enough. But I guess it's just have that discipline, discipline to get through. And what's your routine with it? Do you have to clean it or like how often would you clean it? Do you use any oils or anything? Yeah, I guess now like, I actually wash my hair and I, when I do that, I wash my beard and I run a conditioner through it as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, actually, like previously, I never oiled. Um, of recent note, or like the last year or two, I've actually got the oils onto it and more just for the skin underneath. Mm. You, don't, you don't really get to clean the skin and, and it smells a bit nicer too. Mm. It always helps. Mate, that is, that is good insight to start the podcast on growing facial hair. Oh, great start. It's pretty easy. Just don't shave. <laughs> It'll get there. Not everyone gets that growth like you, though. Anyway, so most people will think that you're retired, but rumour tells me you were running around club rugby last season. Talk me through this. How did I get involved there? So I think coming out of the first, very first lockdown in 2020, I was, um, I, I felt like I was, I was being too much of a hermit. You know, I was just staying at home and not really getting out and involved with people, and, and sort of had a a career change as well and I thought a good way to connect with people was get back into club rugby so um, a good friend of mine uh, Michael Barnes you know was involved with the Old Boys University Club here in Wellington and I, I reached out to him and said oh mate can you come along and sort of you know just help out and keep an eye on the line out sort of thing of the, of the senior team and, um, and basically connect with people and you know get a few connections going and, yeah. and that sort of thing and then um I think I'd, at that stage I'd signed up to play the uh, was it the parliamentarian team or so I was playing for the Centurions against Palm, Parliamentarian the one that um, Ashley Bloomfield oh, played yeah, in yeah, so yeah. I had that game coming up and then I turned up to my first training to you know, look at the, the OBU sort of seniors and that and um, the reserve coach Paul Swift yells out to me and goes you know says g'day and goes oh mate you got that game in a couple of weeks again you know the Parliamentarian game. I think you need a run before that, eh? What do you reckon? We were short this weekend. She, I was like, well, actually, you've got a good point. I wouldn't mind dusting <laughs> off the cobwebs. Um, so I was like, yeah, fair enough. I'll you know, come along and got about 20 minutes that first game and then played that parliamentarian game and then kept turning up to trainings. And, you know, same old story with club footy these days. Everyone's short and yeah. keep saying, oh, chances again this week. I was like, oh, yeah, no, I can't. I've got nothing else on. And, <laughs> Next thing you know, I'm playing pretty much every game. Um, but absolutely loved it, you know, especially playing for, like, the reserve team was, you know, the level that I was comfortable playing. All the guys here were there for the right reasons and, you know, there for a bit of social time and, and you know, love playing footy and, and mm. competing and that. So suited me down to a tee and actually I think I won my first final, actually, of, of my career with uh, the reserve side <laughs> in 2020. <laughs> I was playing off a fifth fifth place, but it was a final nonetheless. <laughs> they all count. The boy, I reckon some of the boys are still partying a year on actually for that. Um, <laughs> so that sort of sets the tone of why I was involved. But um, yeah, again, twenty twenty one, I again reached out to them and said, oh, or they reached out to me this year and sort of said, you know, you can come along, and I say, yeah, I'm keen to help out, but less less playing and. Um, sort of more of the coaching side, I think, for the for the reserve side, and sort of helped out when I could. And I was a bit busy this year, so um, I did don the boots maybe two or three times and enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I sort of had, with the reserve side, I sort of had a couple of rules for them. Though, if I was playing, I said, look, you know, if there's someone else that's fit that can play, they play ahead of me. I don't want to take anyone else's spot. And 
Not, and the second rule was I don't want to play 80 minutes. I'm comfortable coming off the bench, which was awesome, yeah. um, which I think suited them as well. And yeah, we had a, had a great time. I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I don't know whether I'll keep teaming up. We'll see what happens, you know, come whenever the season starts next year, March or something. <laughs> Might get a few feet again. <laughs> That's so awesome. So your body's obviously good. Like you, you've had a massive career and your body's still sweet to be able to play rugby at that level. Uh I mean, the body's not what it was, you know, 20 years ago or whatever it was. Um, yeah. But obviously, and decent enough neck to jog around. And you know, I'm pretty sore after a game, even if it was 20 minutes or so. Like, it's yeah. pretty, pretty tiring. And um, obviously, you don't have the training load behind me either, <laughs> like, leading into it. Uh, especially when you just rock up, no training, into the game. Um but, you know, I mean, I, I've, I was pretty lucky. I mean, I had a couple of big injuries and that, but uh, no long-term effects. And, you know, I've managed to stay reasonably fit post-rugby. I haven't blown out like some mm. others. And, you know, I was really conscious of that, actually, when you know, coming towards the end of my career to try and change my habits um, around eating and, and obviously, you know, trying to keep fit, but without actually doing too much fitness, if that makes sense. Mm. I, mean, I was never keen on, on the gym during my career, I only, only really went in the gym because it was part of our job, but not because I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, same with running. I, I've never enjoyed running. So uh, since then, I've sort of taken up a bit of cycling, but uh, it's getting a bit hard with um, you know, with my job at the minute. I don't really have too much time to do the cycling and stuff, but you know, you keep pretty fit on, on the job site. So I've mm. uh, been pretty lucky, I guess, in that regard. So how did your rugby career finish? Because I read somewhere that it was a head knock, but – um, how true is that one? Uh, you know, that's, that's commonly um, most people in New Zealand think that I retired because of um, concussions. Um, I think there was an article published at some stage saying I retired because of head knocks. Um, it sort of coincided with one another. I was, I was always going to retire that that season. Um, so I sort of decided in the, I think it was about January when I actually decided and announced it and then maybe February or March, you know, actually I think it was late March, I I got a, a head knock that rocked me quite a bit. And, um, you know, the season's only a couple of months later than when it was, was when it was finished. So, you know, I didn't really come back from, from that head knock um, in time to play the last game or anything. So it sort of looks like I've retired because of the head knock, but I was always going to be so... Yeah, no, no long-term effects from the concussion, but I tell you, it's, it's, it's probably the scariest injury I actually received, I guess. Um, you know, a lot of other guys out there, have, a lot of necky guys especially, that have retired early because mm-hmm. of it. And, you know, obviously I was fortunate that those guys had gone through it before and um, I was quite aware of, obviously, the dangers and that. So I was, obviously, when I decided to retire too, I was in no, no rush to get back. Mm. I mean, I was keen to play that one last game sort of thing and have a bit of a send-off, but I wasn't going to risk anything for that. And you went straight into coaching with La Rochelle at the time? Was that right? Uh, Yeah, I mean, on paper, I guess, yeah, I did. Um, Yeah, there's a bit of a story there. Um, Your French rugby is quite funny. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think it was that last game of the season I was playing as a player that uh, there was a bit of an argument that last very last game between the head coach and the other coaches and stuff and with the, you know, we played that game and then obviously the season's finished and I think it got to a point where the head coach was like well either to the club is either you get rid of the other clubs or I'm leaving and 
So the head coach left. He, he still had a couple of years on his contract, so he sort of quit out of nowhere. And I, mean, I, I always planned to stay on in France for a, for a while and take it easy and try and transition a little bit easier out of rugby and you know, see a little bit of Europe as well and, and obviously you know, set up things with my partner before she moved from France to New Zealand. And um, So obviously the coach quit and then the club were like, well, we don't really have a coach and we're likely to stay around and stay along the side of the boys and help transition them from you know, last season to the next one. And so they had a contract. As a, I think the role was like as a transition guy or something like that. I don't even know what the word was, but I was like, well, if I'm going to be involved, I want to actually you know, be hands-on. Um, so I ended up signing a, a coaching contract. Um, so it's just an assistant coach, really. I mean, they, they had the, um, the old coaches sort of stepped up as head coach and that sort of stuff, and um, which which proved very challenging. Um, it definitely helped my French actually because I all French coaches and that, so I actually for once had to speak French full time, mm-hmm. and um, it was a bit of eye opener, sort of seeing how the other side sort of works, and obviously the French side is very challenging, like um, you know coming up with good ideas, what you think are good ideas, and just getting the no, nah, it's not the way we do things. And <laughs> just getting shut down and sort of like, oh, what, what am I doing here? You know, like you know, it's sort of wasting my time. So it got to a point where actually, I, I did actually go on holiday um, during one of our breaks, and then sort of got told pretty much if you don't want to come back, you don't have to. So I was like, oh, sweet. Wish I booked a longer holiday now, but uh, but I mean, it was only I was going to stay till you know sort of Christmas time. So this is you know early November. So Mm. Um, well, that sort of stage, I checked out anyway. And they ended up hiring uh, Johnny Gibbs, who who was doing the Waikato season and then coming over. So he sort of arrived as as I left. And yeah, so that was a bit of an opener into coaching and managerial side of things. Did Did you enjoy it? Uh, it was it was challenging, obviously going from straight from playing into the same environment as a coach. I sort of didn't really know where I sat. Yeah, and the scheme of things, I don't know where my sort of allegiances sort of lay, or you know who to sit with, and yeah, um, you know, it's kind of it was quite a confusing time, and obviously I had that sort of transition role, but a coach and trying to work out actually where I fit, you know, like uh, it was quite challenging. But um, as a as a player, like um, I spoke to a lot of guys that were keen for me to be a coach, but I I never really had aspirations for it. Always wanted to. Now, when I finish playing, I want to have a, a separation from playing. If I got involved in coaching, I want to do it straight away. I sort of, I, I saw it as sort of, you know, you're sort of chasing the same rugby player's dream. And mm. yeah, by that stage, I, I'd had enough of um, living overseas and going where the work was. Um, you know, I was keen to come home and you know, spend time with my son, Wellington, and you know, and and try and set up my life outside of rugby, away from rugby. And then, you know, if coaching did come along, or well, it was something I was, I was interested in, it would come along on the side of whatever I'd done. Mm. Um, which is still, I'm not still not there. Um, I guess with Always University, they're pretty open to me just helping out when I can, which you know might be. You know, one train in a month or you know, a couple of games here or there and that and I think they're pretty happy with that but um, yeah which is which I'm pretty fortunate to have and then maybe in the future who knows but um, for now you're yeah, like 
yeah, I see, I see coaching as you know, you got to go with the workers, and yeah. there's actually not a lot of jobs out there that are in the coaching side of things that you can do full time and mm. get paid decent coin as well. Mm. It's 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 quite a challenge. How hard was it to set up your life outside of rugby? You mentioned coming back to New Zealand and setting up your life first. So how hard's that been? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a huge challenge. Um, I mean, everyone's got a different story about it. You know, I think that the best thing I sort of thought about leading into it was I knew that it was going to be tough. Yeah. Um, so my expectation was it's going to be tough and challenging and all that sort of stuff. So there was no real big surprises around it. Um, so that's why I sort of planned to stay in Europe for, you know, six months or so and sort of have a bit of a break and a holiday and sort of ease into it and then um, <clears throat> sort of had different focuses, which was part of my transition, I guess, was moving back to New Zealand was, you know, first one was trying to get back into my son's life more regularly and obviously transition my partner who's French into New Zealand way of life and that sort of stuff and I, I sort of had all these other focuses more than on myself yep. um, and then it's probably about six months I was into I'm back in New Zealand and then it sort of started kicking in like you know I've actually got to sort myself out and you know, get back out involved in things and actually find a job which um, I guess the hardest thing around that for me was I've never really known what I wanted to do or still don't um, so when you start to look for a job it's like well where do I start looking so I mean I was I was looking every day at um, all the job listings and that and applying for like stock take jobs and stuff just to get me out of the house and yeah I mean I never I didn't end up doing anything like that but um, I guess that, that was the biggest challenge for me was and it still is you know trying to sort out what what it is I actually want to do. Um, yeah, I, it's a good question. I, I still don't know what I want to do. So how did building come into it? Because now you are you are working on the building site, doing your apprenticeship, right? Uh, that's, that's, yeah, that's the one. Um, yeah, I guess so within that first six months, I ran into – I was on a stag do for um, a, a mate of mine, Rob <laughs> Hamilton stag do, and um, one of the, his – oh, our mates as well as on there is James Annabelle, who – Owns a uh, honey company, and he sort of mentioned that I could I could have a role for him selling honey, which which I thought um, you know sales was a really good role to be in from a rugby background. Obviously, using the connections and the persona of a rugby player it helps with the the sales. So I got stuck into that for about nine months, and then it sort of came to an end. Um, you know, both sort of ends. You know, the company and myself sort of parted ways by the end, and. And then that, that led into the first lockdown of, of COVID in 2020 and, you know, sort of that whole time was a big time for reflection, I guess, and, and try and sort out actually what I wanted to do. And obviously, you know, six weeks, you're living at home and um, it's just me and, and me and my partner and actually her, mo- her mother was actually over visiting for a month. That turned into three months. So, you know, there's a bit of time to reflect on things and, and one of those things was, you know, sales. Yeah. I, I didn't feel it sat with me, my personality that well. Like, you know, I'm pretty laid back and then I, I don't really like forcing people to, you know, pushing the case for people to buy honey or whatever <laughs> it is. It's sort of not in my nature. So I was like, oh, it's probably not suited for me. 
Uh, so I sort of, you know, sat there going, what am I interested in? And like most rugby players, is sort of interested in, in property and that. So I you know, started researching a few things and quite a few jobs out there in your property management and, you know, obviously property development and all that sort of stuff is something I'm interested in. Um, and then everyone I spoke to is like, yeah, it's awesome, but if you want to do that, you sort of got to know what you're doing first and suggested I start from the bottom. I was like, oh, I don't mind doing that. So I said, I'll do my apprenticeship. So I researched around and found a good good company in Wellington, and that's uh, it's been about a year or so now, maybe just over a year since I first started with them and getting stuck into the apprenticeship, which is it's been awesome. I've really enjoyed it. Um, you know, coming from the sales job to this one, I was a bit more physicality, which yeah. obviously sits well with the background of a rugby player and um, you know, being hands on and obviously building, creating things is you know sits well with me, and no, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Obviously, there's days like any job where you absolutely hate, like you spend a spend a day on the shovel. It's not that nice after <laughs> nine hours, but um, on the whole, yeah, I, I find that I'm really enjoying it, and yeah, I'm pretty pretty happy of where of decisions I've made, you know, sort of in this career path and. Um, and saying that still, I, I mean, I don't know what I'm going to be doing in five years or so, but uh, yeah. for the moment, I'm really happy. And I mean, I always put it, I always said this about it. It's like, well, if I don't like building, I'm still learning you know, really good life skills and mm-hmm. things that are handy. You know, I'll be able to fix things a bit more. And you know, if that's the worst thing that comes out of this, then you know, it's a win. So 100%. That's, uh, that's, that's been my sort of theme on it. Does your height come in handy on the building site, or is that a bit of a negative? Uh, both. <laughs> both. So no ladders required. Where do I start? Negatives. Negatives. I hit my head a lot. <laughs> um, you know, scaffolding. Scaffolding's designed to be you know, this this high, and you know, so it's about this high. So I'm <laughs> I'm hitting my head all the time and uh, things like that. Or I was I found myself one day on a roof trying to like. Yeah, now like Joyce down below my feet and just yeah. struggled like just to get down that low and obviously a couple of knee, bad knees as well doesn't help and <laughs> but you're stuck up there so you just sort of do what you can do and then I look around these other little little fellas that you know non rugby guys are just scampering up and down the <laughs> the roof and you know you're spinning over and just doing it with ease and taking the piss out of me but then I was like well you know get get me doing something else you want you need to go get a ladder and <laughs> You won't be able to reach it, so yeah, stick to your strengths. That's it. <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. It's awesome to hear how that, that transition's gone, and uh, good to hear that you're going well and enjoying that building side of things. But anyway, we need to get back to the start for the Jason Eden story. What was growing up like for you? Uh, you know, I, well, I say it's pretty typical, but I guess everyone mm. would probably say that. Pretty typical childhood. Um, grew up on a farm. Uh, in the middle of two near Pongana there. Um, so I was the third third child, two older brothers, and a, and a bit of a rugby family. So uh, we're, we're out playing sports now every waking moment pretty much. Well, that was my plan anyway, trying to keep, keep my older brothers happy as much as you can playing sports so they'd come out and yeah. play as long as you can. You, you know, when you get a bit older, sort of, yeah, you know, maybe maybe get out a bit easier in the cricket, <laughs> so they get a turn, and so they stay out there a bit longer. So you keep playing, 
you know, it's sort of a balancing act. Um, I don't think they'd like to hear that, but you know, I just want to be out there all day, um, you know, playing rugby and cricket and everything else that that came up with growing up on a farm. Yeah, so I mean, I I got stuck into rugby from well, the, the story that my mum told me was that uh, obviously two older brothers, so when they were playing, I I just joined in and kept up with them. So when I was three, I think is when they said I, I started playing. Um, you know, I wasn't hurting anyone or I wasn't getting hurt, so they said, oh, you can go. So started pretty young and played every year. Were you tall? Uh, yeah, I was, I was tall. I mean, yeah, no, I've always been pretty tall. Obviously, there's that stage during, you know, around puberty and that where, you know, people shot up at different stages and stuff. And But apart from that, I was always sort of, you know, back row of the photos and, that sort of things. Yeah, so I've always had a bit of height and a bit of size. And were you always a lock? No, no, I I probably my first actual full season as a lock would have been when I was 15, I reckon. Oh, yeah. Growing up, um, I was always a first five, actually. Oh, there he is. I was is. young. My oldest brother, Brett, he was a halfback, so, yeah, he was, he was very um, keen on working on his pass. And <laughs> being a first five was perfect because I always catch him and, yeah, you know, I worked on my kicking and all that sort of stuff, and um, so I was first five up until probably about you know, intermediate age, and then you know, sort of got moved to this, you know second five and a little bit of fullback at high school and and that, um, and then had one season at blindside, I think at fourteen at full form. Um, once obviously the height actually came about, like proper height, and going, oh, that's where the future's going to be. So, uh, which was which was quite challenging, like. Um, it took me a number of years to actually put my head in the right places. So, you know, I still thought I was a back, even though I was <laughs> you know, a different number on my back. But um, sort of at school, I, you know, I wasn't always the best player, but uh, you know, it turned out okay at the end. How tall were you at school? Like when you, because you went to Palmy Boys, right? Were you first 15? Were you? Uh, yeah, my last year was first 15 and sort of towards the end of my sixth form year. It's, um, it was a bit of a funny old story at school. I, um, Back then, um, in the Manor 2 sort of secondary schools era was the trials for Manor 2 secondary schools was the Palmy boys first 15 against the best of the rest. So in my sixth form year, I was in the second 15. So I was playing against the first 15. Oh, true. With, um, with the other lock, Hayden Hazlitt, from um, the, the second 15. And then uh, we actually got picked in the Manor 2 secondary schools, <laughs> both of us. <laughs> Playing against the first team, so it's like, well, how does this work? You know, like, um, and then uh, then the next year, same thing happens, but I'm, I was in the first team this year, and it was me and Lloyd Bud were the main locks for the first 15, and we trialed against the best of the rest. And our coaches were like, oh, you guys will get in easy, we'll give um, the other guys a bit of a run. Which was, uh, I think it was, I think it was again Hayden. Hayden and um, Ed Pierce, I think, was the other two locks. They got a run, and so they played us for the first quarter, and then played the other guys. I think the other guys got in, and we didn't. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, what do you do? <laughs> so yeah, high school's a bit of a funny old one, but um, yeah, I always look back and I think high school rugby is probably the most intense, passionate rugby I've ever played in. Like, uh, I think it's just an age thing where you. Yeah, you think you're better than you are, and yeah. it's the be all and end all, like playing first team rugby. And 
obviously such traditional games, you know, you're playing for the Pulse and Banner or mm. against Napier Boys or Napier Men's, as I'll say, and um, or playing against New Plymouth Boys at the Gully Ground there in New Plymouth and you know, having the whole school there doing the hucker on the, on the side. And yeah. It was, it was really special and, um, you know, at the time you think you've made it. And, you know, it's probably the most nervous I actually got before rugby games was probably back then. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's very, very intense. I guess you might get that a bit at Nelson. You know, it's the same, as it? Yeah, 100%. I, I'm the same as you. I used to get probably more nervous for those games than any other game. I remember first game, like at Jade Stadium or, and things like that, just so nervous about the the big game. Oh, you got to play at Jade. Jesus. <laughs> Flash school, mate. Big, big time. <laughs> It's no gully though, is it? The gully, the gully's one no, of the no gully, no gully. That's one of a kind. So was all was rugby always like your dream? Was it always to make it as a professional? Uh, growing up as a kid, I was uh, mad on rugby. Yeah. Like you know, posters on the wall, like everything. I watched every game that I could. You know, played in the morning, ball boyed for club rugby, and all sorts of things. I was mad about it. Then I, I guess in my teenage years, I I sort of got a bit sick of it, but still loved playing. So I, you know, still trained and played and that. Um, and then obviously through the high school career, I was, I mean, I was keen on playing rugby, but I never thought, oh, this is what I'm going to do for a career or mm. anything like that. I was sort of, I'll just keep playing and keep enjoying it. I thought, oh, maybe it might be a chance, but wasn't a real big focus. Um, so I left school and. I remember my mother's telling me to find a job or go to uni or so. I don't know what I'm going to do for work. I still don't. <laughs> but um, so I went to uni and followed everyone there and you know, joined a club, um, Fielding Yellows, joined them and and just absolutely loved playing club rugby and um, there in Manor 2. And then my second year, I think I got to um, make the Manor 2 side and this was back in 2002. Mm. Div 2 at the time? Div two, yeah. So now two playing second division. So yeah, I was getting I was getting paid at this stage, but it was like two hundred dollars for a win. Yeah. Um, before tax. What about a loss? No, no money for a loss. Oh, true. Only if you won. <laughs> it was just uh, yeah. I think I think we had a. I think I signed a contract. It might have been like two thousand dollars for the season. Yeah, and then two hundred. And then two hundred dollar win bonus, and then it might have gone into four hundred dollars for or two hundred dollars for a playoff and. An extra two hundred dollars for a win or something like that. Well, I don't know. Something yeah. like that anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and which was awesome being a student because you know I'd have no money all year and well work all summer, try and save up money to get through the year and come now two season I had no money. So <laughs> you know, I think I was borrowing off my flatmate actually to pay the bills and just waiting for my my checks to come in. Uh, you yeah, go down the fits and buy tro bourbons and away you go. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I guess it was probably in that second season for Manor Two. I was like, "Well, you know, things are going okay. Um, you know, what 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 would it take to be a professional rugby player?" So obviously, the next step was to go from second division to first division. So um, at the time, I think my mum and my club coach at the time, Bill Clark, was also mum's boss at Field Intermediate. Um, sort of put together a bit of a CV and. I don't even know whether it was like a, a CD-ROM or something with highlights or something. I don't know whether they did that or not back then, but I had no idea. I was sort of pretty oblivious to it. Um, yeah. 
you know, keen on it. But uh, So they sent that out into whoever they sent it to. And I think who came back? I think North Harbour and Taranaki came back and sort of said, oh, we'd be interested. Um, so I was like, oh, Taranaki's just up the road, so it makes sense to me. So I went and signed. I think I had to go sign it in front of the Justice of the Peace or something. So I think when I was working at the Freezing Works here in Fielding, I had to go early to the court in Fielding and sign it on some day. And so then yeah, I moved up to Taranaki and then played club rugby for Stratford. Yeah, I made made the, uh, the the squad that year in 2004 uh, for the Taranaki, but didn't get a run at all. Like, so they had some some good players at that stage playing lock. Um, obviously a lot better than me at that stage. So they had uh, Paul Tito was obviously captain and Reese Robinson was out of the lock and Scott Berman um, was also there and doing a good job. So I played bees the whole year, which, yeah. again, looking back, I actually loved that season. I mean, I did throw my toys a little bit that I wasn't getting an opportunity, but I think it was just me being young and thinking I was a bit better than I was. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I was 2005, had uh, another club season, and then – I think Bruce Robinson actually moved on, so there's a bit of a bit of opportunity there. And then I think Taranaki actually played uh, the British and Irish Lions, um, which was actually ended up being my first game for Taranaki, actually. True. Um, which, I mean, at the time, I didn't really realise how big a game that was, really. Um, looking back, it was a pretty massive first game, and obviously there was a massive crowd at Yarrow Stadium. Yeah. And obviously the whole touring things back when... You know, obviously, everyone can tour and fill out stadiums and all that sort of stuff. Um, the good old days. The good old days. But uh, it wasn't probably until then. I mean, even still then, I was trying to work during the club season, doing odd jobs. You know, I was still struggling to think whether I was going to make that next step to the Hurricanes. And then, I don't know what happened that year. Um, that uh, Air New Zealand Cup, I think it was called back then, was... Um, yeah was a, uh, a bit of a game changer, really. I sort of got a crack in the first game, which you know, years later I heard um, Andrew Horwich had a bit of a word in that, saying he's keen to have me in the line-out to throw to. Were you good mates at this stage? No, I'd, I'd never met him until, I think this was just after his little incident down in Dunedin with his mates. Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't even know who he was or didn't even know the story. And you know, people were joking about this the seal shooter or something. I was like, I had, I had no idea the hell what was going on. Yeah, I, I didn't know from Bar of Soap, to be honest. He just wanted you on that line out. He just wanted to throw to me, <laughs> I guess. Um, I guess at this stage, I was, you know, like probably 105 kilos or something and you know, two, two, over two metres tall, so pretty easy lift and yeah. you know, easy target, I guess. Um, so I think he, he had a bit of a hand in getting me that first game against Waikato and yeah, I think the rest is history after that. Like, you know, things things went all right. Mate, you must you had a dramatic rise because that same year, was it the end of that year that you got called into the All Blacks as an absolute bolter? That's right, mate. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, there's, there's sort of stories I hear like years later was, um, well, I didn't know at the time, but uh, Steve Hansen came to look at Chris Masoi, um, one of our weeks. I think we were preparing for Auckland. It's a home game in, in New Plymouth there. And so Steve came and had a look at Masoi and, you know, sort of seen how he ticks and give him a few pointers and stuff. And um, as I found out later was Neil Barnes was our coach then, a Ford's coach. And he's here sort of had a word to Steve about 
about me. And I had no idea, but he said, oh, yeah, look at this kid. He's got something about him. So I found out later. Um, so, I mean, during during the week, he sort of helped me a bit with the line-outs and a few other things, a few pointers. And I thought, oh, he's just been a good bargain and helped me out. So um, this year, 2005, we had an absolute shock at Taranaki. We, um, we, we beat Northland, which everyone beat Northland, <laughs> so it wasn't saying much. We lost every other game, and then this game against Auckland, we, I don't know what happened, whether it was Steve being in town or something like that, or um, afternoon footy, we just turned it on, and I just had one of these games that were out of the bag. One, like, 10 line-outs, stole, like, two or three from them, and you know, top tackle count, and scored a try, and oh. you know, just didn't put a foot wrong, like, just one of these dream games, and yeah. from what I know, like, that was the one game that made me... You know, go on into your tour, sure. which happened to be the one that was, you know, Steve was there watching and it was still weird, weird sort of scenario getting that the first phone call from uh, Graham Henry and it was the first time I heard about the All Blacks was I, um, at the time I was living in Stratford with um, a few guys and we used to play uh, backyard cricket on a ten- grass tennis court under, under floodlights. Um, so me and the two flat, uh, boy flatmates, um, Ross Williams and Perry Topia, were out there playing cricket under the floodlights late at night. And then my other flatmate, um, Victoria, answered one of my phone and comes out and goes, oh, JC, there's a phone call for Graham on the, on the phone. I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't know any Grahams. <laughs> then it's just like, Jace, yeah, g'day. <laughs> Graham Henry, yeah? Oh, yeah. Oh, Piss off. Well, like, what are you doing ringing me? Like, this, is, this can't be you. Who is it? Because, no, no, it's me. He goes, oh, I think you've had a good season. I want you to keep fit just in case. And then, you know, he sort of went on to say that there was, um, well, it was back when they had, like, quarterfinals. The first brought in the quarterfinals about, about then. And oh, yeah. So Graham invited all the guys that went playing in the quarterfinals down to Wellington for a camp. I showed up and I was just like, what am I doing here? I'm like, these are the guys that I know from telly and that. Um, so it was a you know, two-day camp, a bit of a training and stuff. And at the end of the go, right, just because you're here doesn't mean you're going on tour. And I was like, yeah, okay, yeah, thanks for the invite. Um, went back to Stratford and, yeah, I didn't really tell anyone that I was there. And I think that obviously the team naming came out, must be coming up. And then I think I went and played golf like the day before it. And then I think Taranaki were trying to organise like a press conference just in case. Yeah. Well, that's what I was told, just in case. And they couldn't get hold of me because I was out playing golf. And then they, I think they rung my mum to try and find me. And I hadn't told her a thing. Eh? And she was just like, then I had all these missed calls from her as well going, what the fuck's going on? Like, what do you tell us? <laughs> I was like, oh. Well, I'm not going to make it, mum. What do you want? So I'm not making a big deal about it. And then oh, it's just the biggest drama ever. But but then, lo and behold, yeah, the team got named the next day. And yeah, I was read out pretty early. Being eaten is obviously pretty early in the alphabet. So, um, you know, big shock. Um, you know, when when did the press conference and that? And then uh, the story is that mate, the, my mates all in Stratford went out to buy some kegs, beer, and there was no kegs at all in Stratford. <laughs> had to buy um, crates, I think. So I think it was, it was actually Labor Weekend, actually. I think it was the oh, Sunday of Labor Weekend. So Monday was um, obviously a holiday. So the boys got stuck in. And did you did you feel comfortable? Like, 
doing all this media? Did you feel comfortable being named an All Black? Uh, no, no, to be honest, no, I, I wasn't comfortable at all. Um, it was just so unexpected and out of the blue. Um, and I guess, like, obviously, I mean, I played for Men on Tour and that, and I did, like, you know, interviews with the local newspaper and yeah. I don't think I did any real real interviews with um, with Taranaki apart from maybe the newspaper as well there, um, if that. Um, so I wasn't really comfortable doing that. Um, yeah, and, and obviously the nature of coming out of nowhere and actually being named was huge shock. Um, so I sort of felt unreal, sort of felt like it was happening to someone else, mm. um, if that makes sense. And obviously then going into camp, like, it was very strange. Like, I'd, I'd only been overseas once, and um, that was the Gold Coast with my brother. And so I didn't, I didn't have any money. I didn't have a credit card. I didn't have a suitcase. I didn't even know what to pack for, like, <laughs> five weeks. Um <laughs> So it must have been strange for like the like the manager and like the, the you know the liaison people from the All Blacks. Like I was ringing them up, just like asking like you know, random questions, like you know like, what's how many how many undies pairs of undies do I need, or you know, like like can you order this? So I remember like and then it was like Labor Day, so I couldn't like organize credit cards because the banks closed. Um, I was like, oh, this is a nightmare. So I think I ordered a credit card, but then had to get like the chairman of New Zealand rugby to bring it over with them to um, <laughs> where were we in, in Wales like the first week and um, yeah, it was very strange very strange and obviously like being in the environment like because I only knew it was only um, Andrew Hoare and Chris Marceau the only other guys I actually knew in the in the whole squad um, lean into it but um, so that felt really strange like almost like a feeling like I didn't belong yeah um, but in that environment, I don't know how long it would be going on beforehand, but at that stage, they were like, they went out of their way to welcome you into the group. I mean, you hear the stories of guys, especially in your position, that wouldn't welcome in the new guys and you know, treat them like shit or yeah. you know, this hierarchy and stuff. But I guess at that stage, you know, 2005, there was none of that. You know, I, I remember with Chris Jack, I think, the first week, and you know, he went out of his way to make sure I. I was obviously getting across everything game wise and all the support I needed, and you know, obviously had like lots of meetings for the new guys, and you, know, you sort of get to know the ins and outs of being an All Black pretty quickly, and you know, there's a lot of support there, which which makes sense. Like looking back, it's like pretty awesome for for likes of myself going in there from from where I'd come from, and um, you know, getting that support, and it makes sense to. You only need the best out of players if you should do that. If it's an inclusive environment, rather 100%. than the old school sort of mentality, you got to earn your stripes and yeah, and that that way. So appreciative of that. And what was the tour like? It was a bit of an eye opener. Um, so what happened? We flew out, flew to Cardiff. I think we arrived like the Thursday week before the test, so we had about. You know, nine days I think before the test, and so we hit the ground, a couple of trainings, and then uh, obviously as I said earlier, it's like my first time travelling, so first time experiencing jet lag. I had no idea what was going on. I was, you know, I think got to the Saturday night. They gave us Sunday off, um, so Saturday night I was lying in bed, falling asleep, 
and at about seven o'clock at night, I was like, oh, yeah, this isn't pretty good for my jet lag. So I was like, oh, I'll get up and just walk around the hotel and walked out of my hotel room and bumped into a few guys and said, oh, what are you up to? They're like, I was going on the road for a beer and do you want to come along? I'm like, oh, okay. So I went and put up my strides on and went down to the old walkabout there and turn up and there's just like a, you know, one of these big chili bins, like a meter high, full of coronas and I'm like, oh, this shit, this is a bad, you know, Cardiff <laughs> nightlife, it's awesome. And I remember walking down there and obviously this is Andrew's, you know, he's just got back in the All Blacks from his little incident earlier in the year and he was on a short leash. So he goes, oh, I'm only going down for two beers and I'm going home. And I was like, oh, yeah, sweet, sounds good to me. Well, two beers came came and went and he goes, right, Jason, going home. I'm like, okay, yep, see you later, mate. I'm, I'm freaking having a good time, yeah, having a good night. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, fast forward to about uh, three o'clock or something. I come back to the hotel and there's a few guys still in the bar and having a few drinks. And then uh, we get kicked out of the hotel bar, so we end up by the lobby, you know, by our sort of team room and drinking a few beers. And then someone came up with the idea to go to the church in London from Cardiff, and I was just like, <laughs> well, I don't know what's going on here, but uh, I remember looking around the room. Looking around the guys, I'm like, oh, there's Aaron Major and Leon McDonald from the, um, the leadership group and Dan Carter, who's like, you know, the greatest player in the world. <laughs> then there's Pity Weepu and Jimmy Cowan and myself. And I'm just like, okay. Like, oh, this is what all blacks do. Okay, sweet. So I think I remember the, the actual decision to actually go, we go, right, right. If we'll do like we're drinking Heineken's at the time, so there's obviously the, the label. So if you drink and stop at the label, it's like in the zone or something. That's what it's called or something. Yeah. So uh, right, we're going around. Everyone does does a drink, and the majority get it in. We're going, and I think I threw it. I was like, no, <laughs> I don't think we should go. So uh, I, I drank short or something like that. But then everyone else got it, so I was like, right, let's go. So someone ordered a cab, 180 quid, get us from the from the from Kurt Cardiff to the church. But the funny thing was, like, we had like management coming down to like go for a run in the morning or come down <laughs> to breakfast, and we we're outside. Like, I was like, I don't know how someone would stop us, but anyway, jump in the cab, we're all sort of in the cab, nude or whatever, and partying and singing, and get to the church, and it's 10 a.m. and the old church doesn't open to 12, so. <laughs> It was so bizarre. And then I, I remember we ended up at one stage. I remember ended up in a. I mean, I don't think Carter put this in his book, but ended up at Subway or McDonald's or something, and then sort of just waiting for twelve. Um, and I remember seeing in a, in a hairdresser sitting in a hairdresser watching Dan Carter get his hair washed, um, just killing time for the church to open and. <laughs> I was going, this is so weird. But it must be like what all, all blacks do. Um, and then uh, I think someone sort of realized, oh, this is a bad idea. So they're like, right, let's make a decision again. Was But we didn't have the beers to decide for us this time. It was just like, all right, we can stay and have an awesome time. It'd be an absolute, you know, Rex tomorrow. and um, Or we can just make the best of a bad situation. So we end up training home and... Uh, sulking home and um, yeah, it was an interesting trip home I was sitting next to Jimmy who I think he'd been sent home from um, Brisbane earlier in the year with the juniors so he was like 
oh, I'm getting sent home, I'm getting sent home, oh, no, I've done it again, oh, shit. I'm just going, <laughs> what's going on? Like, what, have we done something wrong? Like, what's going on? I was so oblivious. So, um, get back to the hotel and I'm straight to the scratch rack because I'm pretty tired. I obviously haven't slept after, fall asleep on, the, on my bed at 7pm the night before and get home at 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday and so I had to sleep and then we had a meeting after dinner and um, obviously they said whoever stayed up past five o'clock or something, you know, stay behind and um, a few guys got told off and then Tana sort of turned to me, who's Tana's captain at the time and goes, Ethan, I don't even know who the fuck you are, <laughs> what gives you a right? You're not even an all black, you haven't even played a game yet, what gives you the right to do that? I'm just like... Oh, well, this is the biggest dressing down of my life. I'm so embarrassed. I just want to crawl into a hole and die. But yeah, that was, that was my first week as an author. <laughs> One of the great weeks. <laughs> One of the great stories. <laughs> and then, yeah, I, I, but, uh, in saying that, like, um, obviously a few of the guys are in, you know, decent trouble around it, but uh, they moved on pretty quickly within camp. Yeah. Um, which I guess is, you know, pretty smart from them. I'll see. You know, deal with it, not sweep it on the carpet or anything, but just move on. And obviously, I wasn't playing that first week, so it was a bit of a nice distraction to get my head down and focus again, I guess. Um, yeah, it was yeah, hell of a week. How old are the other boys around you after that moment? Obviously, Tana had a spray, but was everyone else all good? Yeah, I guess I guess I was a bit more sheepish than I really was. Um, yeah, yeah it, was, it was interesting, like... Um, I guess we, we turned it into a, like a semi-joke, t- to be honest, like just, just to try and move on, like sort of joked about it. But I um, guess I was actually rooming with um, Anton Oliver at the time for that first week in Cardiff. Um, so what they do in the All Blacks, they new guys room with the older guys and you sort of learn the ways off them. But, um, yeah. you know, I remember Anton, he was, he was always busy like doing a bit of work on – bit of uh, off-field stuff with All Blacks, like doing presentations and stuff like that. And he re- really didn't talk to me at all that week. And I was just like, oh, okay, that's just the way it is. And it wasn't until um end of the tour that, I think it was after our last game, like walking around. So we won the Grand Slam and walk around the field afterwards and he goes, oh, Ethan, you're not a bad rooster. I thought you were a bit of a dick for what you did in Cardiff. <laughs> was, and, and then he goes, oh, that's why I didn't talk to you all week. I was just like... Oh, oh, you're just a weird rooster. <laughs> oh, that's classic. But you obviously mentioned that you won the Grand Slam, so on the field it was a successful tour, but what was it like for you individually? Uh, you know, it was, it was great. Um, looking back, I guess, I mean, my first game was that second week against Ireland, and looking back, it felt really easy because obviously I had no expectations really on me or for myself or anything like that. And um I mean I looked around the you know the obviously the guys I'm playing with are pretty, you know, the best in the world and that sort of stuff, which made my job a lot a lot easier. I sort of had to do do my role and basically that's all I focused on was getting the lineouts right and make sure I'm in the right positions and and, you know, and the phase play and all that sort of stuff. And I mean I I found it actually obviously with with no expectation, I actually found it quite easy yeah. playing within that group like it's because everyone around you is so much better and you know, going back like no offence to the Stratford boys but you know, <laughs> six months earlier I was playing with these guys carrying them <laughs> <laughs> hey I didn't say that Jabba but 
yeah, obviously it, it makes it makes it a lot easier to, to actually just focus on your role yeah. and, and, and do that. Um, so on the on side of the field, it felt really easy, which I guess is looking back is you know the naivety of not played professional rugby like at a top level before and yeah. it was all downhill from then though Jabber mate I held <laughs> on to that for a long time made a career out of it <laughs> and then what was it like going from being an all black to then coming down to super rugby I guess down and how did you get picked up by the Hurricanes uh yeah that was a funny story I think we um were doing the all black photos before before the tour and um obviously they're doing like the mug shots for oh, yeah. uh for the uh, Super Rugby teams, I was like, um, which team am I in? Like, <laughs> what even, I, don't, I don't even got a contract or, I mean, I don't know who I'm supposed to be playing for. They're like, oh, you, you're in the Hurricanes. So that was the first time I actually knew who I was playing for. True. Chucked on the Hurricanes jersey at this photo shoot. But, yeah, I, I guess going into the environment was strange as well. Like, again, I didn't know anyone in there apart from the Naki boys and, and then the guys that I met on, on tour and stuff and, I guess I was an all-black first, which made things a bit weird. Yeah. Um, I wasn't like a rookie, but I was a rookie, sort of weird sort of situation. Um, but, you know, I had a, had a blast that first year. I mean, 2006 with the Hurricanes was um, was a great year. Um, fog final. The fog final, yeah. I couldn't tell you what happened in there, mate, either. <laughs> No, we had, a, we had a really good season. I, um, again, uh, it was one of those things I, um, I guess it was my naivety. Again, like we had a really good season and I thought that's just how it was. It was just easy yeah. like to make finals and you know, play well and win lots of games and stuff. And hey, it's not like that, is it? <laughs> not unless you play for the Crusaders and Tasman, mate. <laughs> And and so that year was successful for you personally on the field. You played a lot of footy. You got to the final. Yeah, I think um, I think looking back, that was probably my best season of rugby. Um, I was probably played my played my best then. Um, number of reasons for that probably is a couple of injuries later on. And yeah, obviously, obviously I was young and things clipped and um, yeah, played really well. I think I played pretty much every game. Um, and obviously played really well with you know, within the team as well. That was playing really well, and yeah, we had a pretty pretty decent side looking back. And obviously went through, and you couldn't quite get there. The um, the win in the final, um, yeah, it was a bit of a weird situation that that fog final, like sort of how it rolled in during the warm up, and not really knew what was going on. And I still don't think anyone knows what happened really. I think Casey Lalala scored a try. That's about it. That was the difference. <laughs> Yeah, it was a strange one, eh? Tough for lineouts and kickoffs for you? Uh, I, I, to be honest, I don't really. I think lineouts wouldn't have been too bad because you could sort of see that that sort of distance. Yeah. Um, one memory I did have was, as I did back in my days, was I used to hang out on the wing quite a bit or out wide. And I think, like, we're on attack, but, you know, the ruck's on the far side of the field and. I had no idea, but apparently we turned it over. I didn't know what, but I just knew that we came up from attack onto defense, and you know, you just had no idea. I think <laughs> during the game they sent so Colin Cooper's coach, and then uh, Ozzy McLean was the assistant. I think they sent Ozzy around to the other sideline side just so he could watch that half of the field, and <laughs> Coops could see the other half if and what was happening down the middle, no one could see. But um, 
Yeah, it was so strange. I guess it was made worse because of the lights too. The lights, as soon as they shine on the fog, it just yeah. makes everything bright white. And um, as far as highballs and stuff, no, I, I couldn't tell you now. That's too long ago. Fifteen years. Fifteen years. True, man. That is crazy. But you, you mentioned you having probably your best year, and that was recognised globally. I think you won newcomer of the year, two thousand six newcomer of the year worldwide. So. Obviously, that was a huge achievement. Did you feel pressure after winning that, or how did you feel about winning that? Uh, no, I was, I was pretty. I mean, with that award, I think it's um, I was voted by the players, which I, I feel is the most, you know, the highest honor. To be honest, it's not some old old rooster sitting on his armchair deciding who who's the best player or anything. It's, it's voted on by the other players, yeah. so yeah, it was pretty uh, pretty humbling to receive that and. I think it's you know a pretty pretty good achievement. Um, as far as pressure, um, I, I guess I remember I, when I received that was sort of on any tour in two thousand and six, and I I sort of at that stage I was sort of not quite cementing the place in the All Blacks, which I felt that was probably more pressure on me than you know living up to some award or anything like mm. that. It was sort of more just my. Um, probably more my my desire to be you know nailing down the starting spot in the All Blacks and and not quite being there at that stage. Um, I guess that was putting more pressure on myself than, than anything else. Mm. And what was your feedback around the All Blacks, especially towards the back end when you started falling out of favour there? What was what was the comms around that? Well, the big issue that I had was um, kickoffs. Actually, there was. Pretty much the difference between me starting and not at that stage of my career. Um, I think there was a test in Christchurch against the Aussies where Larkin was just putting these you know, little dinky little kicks straight on me, and you know, it ended up being like fifty-fifty balls yeah. with the with the guys coming through, and you know I lost quite a few of them. And I think actually from memory, I think Tony Woodcock had had sore thumbs, so he wasn't really lifting too much, <laughs> and. But it, I mean, it was on me though. Like yeah. you know, fifty fifty. I sh- you know, should have backed myself to get it, and I didn't. So I think that was that was one of the big things for me. I, you know, I knew what I had to work on was uh, mainly my kickoffs. That was the one thing that was really letting me down between you know, starting and not. Um, so I put a lot of work into it. Um, funny thing was, though, when I moved to France, I did zero work on kickoffs and just swallowed anything that came to me when. <laughs> And when I put like hours and hours of work into it, I couldn't catch a cold. <laughs> Maybe something in that, kids. I don't know. <laughs> that is not sure about that advice, but <laughs> yeah, no. I, I I do think there's something in it in that though. Like as in um, when you overthink something yeah, or put too much pressure on something, you know, you overcomplicate it and and you don't execute as well because you're more worried about the outcome like, than the process. Whereas it's a bit like golf, you know. Like, you know, when you're hitting the ball well, you're probably not thinking about, you know, your your lift off of your club or whatever it is that you're thinking about that day. You just see ball, hit ball, sort of yeah. thing. Or, you know, in rugby, you you know you see the spot to jump and catch a kick off. You get there, you jump, you catch it. Yeah, you're not really thinking about the, the outcome or. I take that back. That's great advice. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, your hurricanes. <laughs> I want to talk about your Hurricanes career a little bit. Um, I know your flatting situation was one of the greats. You had some absolute lads in your flat at the time. Ben May, Richard Buckman, Bowden Barrett, 
And James Broadhurst, was it? Yeah, James Broadhurst the first year in 2012, and then he moved out um, with his lovely partner, Brooke, and then uh, Ben May moved in in his spot. Oh, yeah. um, so that was 2012-2013 season. Um, yeah, my last two years with the Canes. So, yeah, that was um, good times. Yeah, we got up to a lot, lot of mischief. Um, you know, four, four like-minded individuals. Um, you know, we ended up playing golf like twice a week and a lot of competition between us. And, you know, it's pretty special to have that sort of flat life, but you're, you know, you're living with your workmates and, Mm. Um, obviously, you're, you're not really. Well, I, I look back to my uh, student days where, you're, obviously, you're living a student life, which is completely different. But yeah, yeah, you're living a lifestyle where you're traveling around the world and playing footy with your mates and you know living that dream, which um, we had some special times. No doubt. And you were known for sort of drinking during season, like after games. Every, I, I'd imagine you drank after most games. Yeah, no, it's fair to say. I um I sort of made it a point to have at least a beer after every game. Yeah. Um, there were, were odd occasions where I'd have like one or two, and that would be about it. <laughs> um, they were very rare. <laughs> I'll tell you that now. Um, I'd have to be bloody injured or something, something special going on for that to happen. But um, no, I was, I was, I was sort of just the way I um, you know, I learned to play my footy. Uh, I suppose going back to um. The field in the yellows days, you know, it was very social sort of side of things, playing club rugby. And, you know, we had, I had a good group of mates that, you know, started out together in the senior side at Fielding. And, you know, we'd, we'd always you know, train on a Thursday. We'd go to the local pub in Fielding before we travelled. We all lived in, in Palmy. So we'd all go to the local pub. There was a sponsor in Fielding and then go over to Palmy and shower up, have a bit of a feed. And then we'll meet up at the, at the pub as well afterwards mm. and have a night out and, um, same again on Saturday, play the game and yeah, play hard. And then it was a bit of a reward and that's what I treated it like um, throughout my career. Like if you played, trained hard all week and played well, sweated it out and uh, you earned yourself a beer. And uh, it, was, it was my favourite part of the week just to, you know, you've done the work and you're able to relax and unwind and, um, you know, sitting around in the change room having a beer with your mates is, you can't replace that. Mm-hmm. It's probably the thing I miss the most about not playing anymore. Um, it's like going to war. It's the closest thing, I guess, to going to war. And you, know, you can share those stories and things you've done with your mates on the field. And <clears throat> having a beer is, um, you know, it's, I think it's, a, it's not a bad thing. Um, I know you might have a different story now that you're a, you're a coach now. And <laughs> I don't know. It seems like every player that turns into a coach. Um, <laughs> Sort of hates people that drink, eh? You know, they're the biggest drinkers in the team. <laughs> what were you like as a coach? <laughs> Still sending it? I was, I was probably leading the charge. <laughs> I guess, yeah. um, no, we were towards, my end of, towards the end of my career in, in France, I think they used to bring out the chili bin full of beers and sit them in the middle of the um, change room. And I think there's a group of us, mainly the foreigners, there's a few Frenchies as well, but... Um, we made a point of it to not leave the change room until we'd finish all the beer. <laughs> um, you know, and then so, at some stage there was like the security guards were coming in going, we've locked the stadium. We're still sitting there in their planning kit and you know, still haven't got to the bottom of the chili bun. And they're like, mate, we're waiting on you guys. Can you hurry up? <laughs> and like, we've kicked everyone out of the stadium. And I was like, oh, mate, we've got a job to do. 
<laughs> oh, that's classic. Was it ever midweekers for you throughout your career? Uh, yeah, there probably was looking back. You know, it was a few times. Um, so 2007 through to 11, I was living with uh, Andrew Keithall. Yeah. Um, who hates a beer. <laughs> um, now we, uh, towards the end, like last couple of years with the heels with the Hurricanes, we used to, um, at Tuesday, we, we sort of, was it, oh, every Wednesday was a day off uh, of a normal, you know, Saturday week game. Um, so Tuesday night, we, we took it as an opportunity to get away from town and away from rugby and um, we used to drive over to the back of Muddenborough to go um, shoot deers and, and have quite a few beers and just get away from things and mm-hmm. let, let off a bit of steam and the pressure and stuff. And you now we could be ourselves over there and no one's going to judge us for being us. And um, obviously there was times where we probably took it a bit too far with their drinking and stuff. But um, now we always turned up back in Wellington on Wednesday and if we had too many, we'd, we'd do a little session, extra session to sweat it out and um, get back and train and, I thought that's just what we did back then. That was sort of the the, the program we had. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. <laughs> did you feel that important for you to have to get away because you were such a recognisable person? Uh, yeah, I, I, I feel as obviously in New Zealand as a rugby player, you do live in a fishbowl and it is nice if as a rugby player you can actually have somewhere to go where you know you can just be yourself I'm not saying you can go there and be crazy and do all sorts of things. It's just, you know, be surrounded by guys, people that you trust and, yeah. you know, good friends and stuff. And you can actually just unwind. You don't have to put up a front or, you know, be polite to some random person or mm. anything like that. And, um, you know, it's nice to actually have that ability to, or that opportunity to get away and, and actually do that. Uh, yeah, you don't have to be doing it every week, though. <laughs> So how did it all end for you? I know Hammer came in, and was was your drinking a part of why you left? No, no, no. I think um, maybe Andrew Keith Hall. Yeah, I think that might have had to do with him leaving. Um, <laughs> I think I got lumped into that with being his right hand man. Obviously, you know, I was tarnished with the same brush there for a while. But um, <laughs> yeah, I'm saying that. I mean, looking back, you know, Mark tried um, changing the culture of the Hurricanes, which, you know, looking back, needed to be done. You know, and and his his thoughts was he couldn't do that whilst you know, two big players and personalities were at, at, in the club with you know, Andrew and uh, Ma. But obviously, the way that it went down sort of didn't really sit well with a lot of the guys and the public and. That sort of stuff, but um, you know, looking back, it, it, the culture probably did need to change. You know, I came back the next year in 2012, and you know, obviously, I, I mean, I spoke to Mark a lot about that in between seasons. Obviously, coming back, and um, I think I'm not too sure we would said it aloud, but it was sort of a, a chance for me to you know wipe the slate clean and start anew. And you know, it's after that. 2011 World Cup, where we had a massive preseason for the Hurricanes, and, and it was like a it was like a whole new different team that year. And um, you know, I got my head, I stuck my head down and worked pretty hard that preseason, and had probably one of my favourite years actually in the Hurricanes on a whole. It's probably yeah, it probably was the, the most mm. enjoyable season, obviously because of the stuff we'd been through and sort of the new culture we're sort of building towards and. 
I felt I played actually quite a big part in that uh, moving forward. And then obviously, as you said, I was living with these other guys. So no, I really enjoyed that year and um, we moved forward. But then towards the end, well, actually, yeah, 2012, I... Um, it was a bit of a politics game that I was playing. I was sort of spoke with Hammett about, um, obviously, he was keen to give me a rest at some point during the season. I was like, well, I don't want to give anyone else a go. So um, I said, oh, if you want to give me a rest, just let me you know, have a training or two off. Like, And basically said that oh, I'm not much of a bench player. I'm not very good off the bench. So if I'm, you know, if I'm going to play, I should be starting and stuff. And sort of convinced them of that which came back to bite me on the ass the next year because <laughs> um, by that stage um, we had like Thrushy had obviously um, worked out that he's a pretty good player and worked hard and came good. And same with Broadhurst, you know, he is sort of starting to click that he's a big bugger and you know, quite powerful athlete and started playing some really good code there. And so 2013, these guys are playing really well and I was, I was sort of just plateauing really. I wasn't quite what I used to be and, what I was doing for the team wasn't enough for me to start. So then, obviously, from the year before, you goes, well, if you're not starting, you're not in the 2022. 20, so, <laughs> so I got phased out, basically. And then, um, yeah, that, that'll teach you for playing politics. Um, but, yeah, then I guess by the end of the year, it was, you know, the writing's on the wall. Like, you know, obviously, not the athlete I used to be and I was playing as well as I was. So, it's to start looking for, you know, wherever the next job would come from, really. So that's when I started looking overseas. And Japan came calling. Yeah, Japan. Japan came calling. Um, yes, I think how he ended up there was Isaac Ross was over there and he dislocated his hip pretty badly. They thought he would never play again. Sure. I see he's only just retired not so long ago. So he's done well from them. But so I came over as injury cover for him and played one season over there. Absolutely loved um, living in Japan. The, the rugby side of things I didn't enjoy as much. It's sort of, for me, I was like, if I'm training, I want to be playing. Whereas over there, they obviously got the foreigner rule around you know, two finals yeah. in the field at a time. And obviously, that's sort of a bit hard being a lock. They don't really need locks to win games um, <laughs> over in Japan. You know, they want, you want big, like, loose forwards to run through teams and yeah. cut little Japanese men in half. And I was already doing that. They don't need me to win their lineup ball. They're pretty good at that. So, um, yeah, so the rugby sort of things, I mean, I enjoyed it, but you know, for me, if I'm pl- training hard, I want to be playing. So it didn't really work out, and I didn't really get many opportunities to play a lot. So you know, I spent seven months over there and then came back to New Zealand and had you know, a big search started again for a, for a next job. And this time, Lara Shell came calling. Yeah, that, t- that took a while. Um, I think in this, and I was back for about four months before I actually signed for them. Oh, true. Um, I think I had a, an offer to play for the Sharks in the Super Rugby, oh. which I turned down. Um, and then I think I had an offer from Taranaki to play, obviously, ITM Cup, which I wasn't really that keen on because you know, I felt like it was a step back. But then Lara Shell came out of nowhere and they were playing um, Signa Vision over there in France and looking to try and win promotion and they said if they won promotion they'll came for me to come over and then they came up with a contract once they got promoted and you know it was two years and I was like sweet I'll take it like um you know it was a pretty easy decision at that stage to go where the work has only really been offered I didn't really have too many other offers so mm. you know I, was, I felt at the stage I must have been about 31 I still felt like I had you know a few more, few more good years in me and 
obviously wanted to make the most of the career while, while I could. And you definitely had a few more good years left in you. You ended up La Rochelle legend over there. Like you, the fans loved you, mate. You were a La Rochelle hero. So how did you find it over there? Uh, I loved playing in France. Uh, obviously, every club in France is a bit different, but um, in La Rochelle, I found a really good fit for me um, in terms of obviously the level of rugby was still very competitive, hard, challenging, and obviously at that stage of my career, like Rochelle didn't train too hard. So, you know, like I get through the weeks okay. Um, obviously living in France is pretty, pretty special. Mm. Um, you know, there's a good balance between obviously the social side of things and, and the rugby and um, and then the city was amazing. Um, La Rochelle, like I liken it to, you know, New Plymouth as in town, like it's a, you know, it's a port town. Um, there's about 80,000 permanent residents there, and but a lot more history than obviously New Plymouth. Um, and uh, very, very supportive um, locals as well. Like, uh, I think they set some record for like selling out the stadium like 50 something games in a row. And it's crazy, you know, like there's 13,000 season ticket holders out of 16,000 seat stadium, so um, and a waiting list and that sort of stuff. So, like, they're very passionate supporters but i found they were really really supportive when i first turned up like obviously we're obviously new to the top top um top 14 and we're struggling there for most of that first season but they were very like supportive uh, very different from new zealand supporters like um a lot more positive support um you know there's not much of the tall poppy over there well that's what i found you know that was my experience mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. It was so much that um, I think it was within maybe four or five months of being there, they sort of obviously were struggling were in the relegation zone and they were like, I had an out clause in my contract if we got relegated and they were like, well, we want you to stay. If, even if we go down, I was like, yeah, it's fine. Like, I can obviously renegotiate a different contract, but um, I, I sort of made that decision there, like this, this is where I want to retire. Um, so when I'm not wanting to play or not wanted to play anymore you know this this is where i was going to finish up so you know, it was a pretty easy decision to extend the contract and keep going for i guess four seasons in the end so how's that club turned it around because like you said they were div two when you sort of went over and now they're probably the or they are the second best side in in europe now so they've had a massive turnaround How, how's that happened uh well, I guess it's a number of things. Um, I guess the best thing I've, I've found that I've done is I've built slowly to, to this point. Now, even a couple of years before I was there, they sort of you know recruited smartly and uh, within terms of players and building up, you know, like the stadium. I've changed the stadium slowly and built a whole new training base and. And obviously got a lot of good support around the, the city, um, and obviously a lot of lot of good factors. I mean, obviously I don't know what's happened exactly in terms of everything behind the scenes, but um, the slowly built up good player base and good coaching, and yeah, like the the one season we did really well when I was there was I don't actually know what happened in terms of playing. Um, it's just one of those French things that. Um, like we absolutely had no game plan. 
this is the scariest thing. Like, um, I remember talking to Conrad, Conrad Smith, who was at Poe at the time, and I think he was injured at the stage, but he was doing a lot of defense work for Poe and obviously analyzing our attack. And we caught up with him before the game, me and uh, Victor, and he she said, cheeky of him, he goes, mate, I've, I've studied like your last games. What is your game plan? I can't work it out. I said, mate, you work it out, you tell us. But like, we've got no idea. But this is one of these weird French things where, you know, one of these games, we won the game away, and then they're like, oh, oh, we can actually do this. We can win games. And then you know, things mm. clicked, and we ended up winning like 15 or 16 games in a row, and you know, just really clicked. And from then, like, yes, from there, we backed it up you know, a couple of years later. And, and since then, I've been you know, second, obviously, last year in both competitions, and obviously, four. So they've actually backed it up. And so it's actually appealing for guys to actually go to the club. And um, mm. also, the best one of the best things is one of the better places in France, I feel, that's to live and play rugby. I mean, there's other places over there, really big rugby teams, but they're not the best cities to be or, mm. um, yeah, well, a bit biased there, but um, yeah, there's a few places I wouldn't really want to live and play over in France. So when you mention about having no game plan, is that, so how's your sort of training week? Is that just all around playing unstructured touch or games or things like that? Or what are you spending your time on? You pretty much summed it up right there, Jabba. Um, we pretty much played 15 on 15, like, touch. <laughs> like, sort of, True. like, throw the ball. And then um, I, I, one of the biggest ones, because we, we did the same trainings week in, week out for, like, four years. That's what probably made me retire, to be honest. <laughs> but um, it was. I remember the most famous one was there would be, you know, like, the team on attack would have, well, both teams would have bibs on. But then, like, this player could break the line oh, and yeah. offload, and this one had to set a ruck. And, like, but it's just 15 on 15 playing touch, basically. Um, we'll see, you know, a few starter plays and stuff. But uh, I guess it had nothing to do with the training. It was just sort of, you know, one of those games, you know, an offload stuck and you know, confidence. Confidence is a massive thing in sport. Mm. So when you've got it, take advantage. Mate, that's. A little bit like what you touched on a little bit earlier around overthinking it sometimes and just the more the more you think about it, the worse you get. So that's just taking it right back to what you know, eh? just playing touch, playing rugby and just going out there and expressing yourself. It's pretty cool. You know, I, I always come back to like the lineouts and stuff and a lot of teams and players try and overcomplicate it to win the ball. Yeah. It's just like, mate, rugby is a simple sport, like, don't overcomplicate it. Just do the basics really well, and if you do that, half the job's done. You're going to be a great coach when you decide to. Yeah, oh, mate, it's getting those those guys to listen, though. <laughs> yeah. You got to text them these days, don't you? You text them in a meeting instead of standing up in front of them and shouting at them. As long as it's in emojis. <laughs> but you have to you have to get like a Google Translate or something for them, though, so you know what you're actually sending. <laughs> oh classic stuff anyway mate shit that is one hell of a career but as always we've gone to our instagram for some questions first question best mullet in the game oh best mullet in the game oh there's too many to choose from today uh these days um 
I'd, I'd go back to like Tim Boys back in the day. He is a, he oh, did yeah. bloody outstanding one. But in this day and age, I tell you what, I think um, Moanga, Richie Moanga, looks a lot like bloody uh, old um, Lionel Richie. Got that look about him. He sure does. Yeah, I can see that. It's quite a puffy wee mullet, isn't it? Like quite thick out the back. It is very puffy, like a bit, bit, bit of an afro-y type sort of texture. Yeah. Um, but no, I'd, I'd, if I had to pick someone, I don't know. Nah, I'd go back to Tim Boys. He, he had a proper Southland dirty mullet. Yeah, he was good stuff. Okay, this was a very popular question in a moment that I'm pretty keen to hear about. Talk me through the Brent Ward bum poke. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that video, hey, that's following me around the world. It still does. Like, like any new crowd I go into, they're like, oh, see, oh, Jason, you know, he used to play rugby, so that I try and work out who I am. They might Google it, and first thing pops up is a bloody video. Um, yeah, I guess it's, it's one of those spur of the moment things that, uh, I don't know, I saw an opportunity just to say good day to me, old mate. Uh, um, <laughs> Lo and behold, I, I didn't realise at the time, which is probably very stupid of me, that I'm playing rugby in you know, live television. That there's a camera right in front of me, and apparently I've looked straight at it and it's gone. <laughs> but uh, yeah, as you ran into uh, Brent Ward, must have been last about a year ago actually, and I said, "Mate, this bloody video." He goes, "Yeah, I know." <laughs> so uh, yeah, so I regret that, but um, yeah, obviously. Yeah, it was all tongue-in-cheek, yeah. um, no malice involved. Um, so I think it's been obviously received wave run in the, in the right the right time. So, yeah, <laughs> I think we should move on. That's <laughs> so good. Oh, so good. Okay. Um, I, couldn't, I didn't realize how popular you were with the men, so I've got a few questions about your looks. But this one, did you know that men question their sexuality while watching you play? Mate, that's first to me. I don't think I've ever been hit on um, by another male. Um, yeah, I, 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 it's, a, it's a surprise to me, Jim. Oh. Um, I'll take it. I'll take it. It's good to know. Is that, is that still current, is it? Still current, mate. Still got it, mate. Still got it. Must Might have been in the club scene. <laughs> is that probably because of the last question, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It might be related. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> okay, next one. Favorite court session. Jeez, you would have had a few of these. Oh, yeah, I've had a few. Had to run a couple too. That's that's some pressure. Mm. Um, geez, I, I remember my first one for the Field and Yellows. I was so nervous, eh? Because I'd never heard anything about it. Favorite one? I'd, I'd probably have to go. Actually. Probably my most recent one actually was um, with the OBU Fighting Billy Goats Senior Reserve Team <laughs> after winning playoff for fifth place last year. That was one of my funnest ones. I did enjoy that. I was, I was an absolute idiot, but. Oh, I could imagine. Yeah, no, it was probably one of the funnest ones. Oh, that's what you want. That's what you want. Bit of, bit of fun. It's all fun and games at the end of the day, isn't it? I've had a lot of ones that have ended ended a lot of spewing mm. and stuff. They're obviously different ones. Yeah, the more intense ones. <laughs> Would have been a few of those in the Naki, I'd imagine. Yeah, the Naki. I had an absolute shocker with my ones for the Naki. Oh, your initiation, wasn't it? Absolute shocker. My initiation ones. Yeah, this is the old uh, 
2005. I had, to have, I had to have two goes at it, actually. The first one, the doc pulled me. So what was it? Six beers? No, it took 12. It was 12. a can every five minutes. That's right. So you're t- uh, 12 in an hour. Um, I think my first, first crack at it, I did seven. And I think at this stage, I don't know what it was, but I felt just after playing, like my body wasn't ready to receive so much volume and I just <laughs> needed to get it out and carry on. Um, but I, was, I went through a phase there where when I vomited, I actually like scratched the esophagus or something like that, some weird term. Some doctor out there might know more about it than me. But um, but when I vomited, like it just turned my vomit like a dark, like almost purpley, like <laughs> obviously a lot of blood in it. And then obviously doing this court session in front of the you know, team management and the whole team and the docs, docs just going, nah, you're out. You're an idiot. Like, stop drinking, mate. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, sweet. So then, you know, two weeks later, next court session, had to go have another go. And same thing happened, but after three beers. And then I was just like, no, I'm good to go now. And I was sweet. But True. he just goes, yeah, don't make a habit of it. <laughs> Did Was that the end of it? Did that follow you for the rest of your career or not really? No, I, I don't think. I, I think it was. A, about yeah, 2005, for some reason, that was sort of the thing I did when I had court sessions. I, did, I think the first time I did it was actually at Stratford. I think we did a um, – yeah, the buggers there. I think Aaron Moore actually stitched him out that one. He um, maybe do an initiation for being captain for that year. Um, I think I did a twist-off, which is six cans or six bottles. We do six minutes for the first one, five minutes for the second, down to one minute. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, I think that was the first time I did it, and I, I was freaked out, eh? But oh. um, I think it only happened on the three occasions, those those three occasions, but never happened again. So yeah, it's quite scary. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> Big, thick purple blood. Oh, good stuff. Yeah, so uh, you're, not, you're not doing a proper cordy unless that happens, eh? You would know. The cordy guru. <laughs> Next question is also on the drinking themes. Uh, Want to know the story around your 100 pints? I was 100 points. Ah, yes. No, so um, which year was this? 2010, I uh, I busted my right knee playing against the Lions in Wellington. And then I think the Hurricanes left on the next day for um, – or might actually be in the Monday, actually. And Sunday I got the – obviously MRI said, you know, your knee's busted. So Monday the Hurricanes left for three weeks for South Africa. So I took it upon myself to spend three weeks at uh, Molly Malone's uh, trying to do the 100 <laughs> pints of Guinness in three weeks. So I got through to, at the time, I thought it was 97 in three weeks. And then, uh, actually, I think the, the day that the Hurricanes boys flew back, actually, I was at the um, at a Black Caps Australia test match, like day four or something, and ended up at Molly Malone's and ended up with... Um, commentators and a few yeah. other people from the cricket. Um, but anyway, the Hurricanes boys come in and you know come straight from the airport and come say good day and have a couple of drinks. And obviously uh, when the Hurricanes tour with the, uh, it's actually a Kookaburra bubble bat, which is actually Hamish Richard Wilson's uh, a bat that Andrew Keith Hall stole from him and <laughs> donated to the Hurricanes. But, so he used to tour with that, but he had that in his belongings. And then um, somehow Andrew convinced Merv Hughes to uh, bowl him an imaginary <laughs> delivery. 
So there we are, Monty Lonesome, Hori takes guard. Murph Hughes trots out to the um, you know, Courtney place <laughs> out there and stops traffic, then runs in, about to bowl the ball, and then Hori pulls away, goes, no, no, there's someone behind you. Like, you know, <laughs> sends back the great Murph Hughes with an imaginary <laughs> ball to bowl in the second one. And then he shoulders arms on the second delivery. <laughs> but anyway, you've got to, oh, this is a long story, isn't it? But uh, 97 pints after three weeks. And then I think I had surgery. And then I think a bit later on, I came into town for another uh, Lion Brown function with my mates. And I think on the Sunday, I said, oh, let's go do my final three pints. So I went in there with a few of my mates and got to the you know, the third one, the 100th pint, and made a big spill and chopped it. And then uh, I was like, yeah, I've done it. And then the lady behind the bar is like, oh, actually, that's your 101st pint. And <laughs> You already done ninety eight. I was like, oh, well. <laughs> oh, geez, hundred points. That is a good effort. Yeah, I sort of had a limit. I could only do fourteen in a session. Eh, fourteen points in in a day. True, and then you'd go. Then, the I, have next to, day. then I have to have two days off though. <laughs> Still, wow, it's a lot of points. Okay, next question: Is it true you and Hori almost started a bar? That is 100% true. We got to the point, uh, must be about, well, we did try and get it up and running for the 2011 World Cup. Oh. I think we're a bit, we weren't quite ready for that. Uh, we did put an offer in a, on a building here in Wellington on the proviso that we could call it um, after our surname. So it was going to be called Eaton Hawes, <laughs> um, which we thought would be a great idea and um, no, we, we, we had a business plan and everything all set up and um, some good friends that were going to um, obviously help us like on the actual running of the bar side of things. And you we know, were that close to you know, putting an offer on a lease on a building and it fell through. So, um, But uh, we actually, one of our old colleagues from Taranaki back in the day, Sam Young, actually caught wind of it. And he's like, mate, I want to get involved. Um Oh, so we can call it Eaton Young Horse. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was a dream, dream of ours, but it didn't quite happen. I think we might have uh, drank it dry, though, if um, we were actually <laughs> names on the building. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not something you'd look to do still? Uh, oh, well, I'll probably look at it, but maybe not quite calling it that. Um, we might have to buy it somewhere else that we don't live in. <laughs> Um, yeah. We always buy it like somewhere in like Christchurch or something. It's sort of halfway between where we live yeah. and meet up, have a little catch up every now and again. Yeah, that's the one. Or else you like, you're right. It will be drunk dry. Okay, last question. Best piece of advice you received throughout your career? Cheapers. Mm. Uh, best piece of advice that I received. I don't know. I don't know whether there is one best piece I, I guess if i was to give anyone some advice it would be obviously have, have a good balance between everything like um obviously if you turn up to train you've got to have everything in in order on the home front and um not worrying about one thing while you're doing the other so uh, obviously you make sure you got everything in in order and i think that you do that through through having a good work-life balance um yeah, you know, don't take everything so seriously either. Like, you know, have that opportunities to switch off. Like we we spoke about at the start of the mm. podcast. I guess is you know, if you play with your close mates and unwind, take those opportunities because 
you know, the, the, the gold when, you, when you're uh, in the pressure situation of, you know, especially New Zealand rugby. So the main takeaway from that is, you know, have a good balance between you know, off-field and on-field sort of um, life. Make sure everyone's happy. Oh, how good. And nobody did it better than yourself. You were the master <laughs> at it. <laughs> Depends who you ask, mate. Some people would say I'd lent one way too much. <laughs> mate, but you had a hell of a time doing it. And, mate, absolute pleasure having you on the podcast, mate. There's some unreal stories in there from one of the great careers and one of the great lads. I obviously loved my time playing with you up in the Naki and briefly at the Canes. And, mate, you're an absolute legend. So it was a pleasure talking to you and getting the rundown on your whole journey. Thanks, Jeva, mate. Keep up the good work, mate. You've, you're on to a winner here. Cheers, mate. I appreciate it, especially getting yarns like yours on. Yeah, sure. I don't know whether they're, um, well, are they user-friendly? I don't even know. <laughs> we'll, we'll soon find out. Well, I might get a few questions from like um, like Carter or something going, mate, what are you freaking telling the actual story? And <laughs> Well, he can always come on and set it straight. Yeah, oh, mate, there you go, mate. I've set it up for you. <laughs> oh, mate, I've messaged him. He said no, so that's all right. <laughs> oh, did he? Yeah. Too big, eh? Too big. <laughs> Too big, yeah. Nah, fair enough. Appreciate it though, mate. Nah, absolute pleasure. What a lad, what a lad, what a lad.